Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. Jared. And in this episode, we are talking about the crisis of democracy and the Trilateral Commission. So we're beginning this conversation kind of in the context of the 1960s. Um, we're clearly not going to do a full history of the 1960s or we'd be here for hours. Um, we actually do have some future episodes planned about this era, like we'll do one for sure on the Black Panthers. Red Power. Yeah. We're going to do um, the Red Power movement and the seizing of Alcatraz and the American Indian movement that kind of flourishes after. Um, uh, the student movements we'll probably do one on for uh, sure. We're going to do second wave feminism at some point as well. So that's during this time time yep. frame as well. Uh, the feminine mystique and national organization of women and, and all that good stuff. So yeah, we'll be doing episodes on that in the future. But just know for the purposes of this episode, the 1960s were full of sort of protests and unrest and fighting for civil rights and so on. Um, but not just in the United States, like most of our U.S. listeners are used to, but also in Western Europe and in many countries across the globe. Um, if you want to learn more about the 60s specifically, we have three suggestions, really. Um, the first one is just like the super quick Crash Course History video. It's about 15 minutes, and it's titled The 1960s in America. It does a pretty good job of providing like a top-level overview. The other two that we have, we actually use in various classes as readings throughout the years. The first one's called Street Fighting Years by Tariq Ali, mm -hmm. who's like a global activist, um, incredibly famous if you've never heard of him. Yep. And he writes, it's, it's sort of like autobiographical of his efforts of what he's doing across the world in the 1960s. And there's another one by John Robert Green titled America in the 60s. And it's a really good overview of kind of what goes on and the Kennedy presidency and like uh, so on in the 1960s, sort of the social milieu that's going on there. So if you want more on the 60s, seek out those resources. Um, we're not going to do a full history. But because of this social unrest and because of these different organizations and different groups and different individuals fighting for equality and social rights and so on, this creates a crisis, using the biggest air quotes I possibly can, for the wealthy elite across the globe. And they try to begin to attempt of how to wrap their brain around this and sort of what to do about it. And it's at this point in our sort of story here that David Rockefeller enters the picture. He's the grandson of John D. Rockefeller, which everyone has heard of. Um, he's a billionaire, clearly, uh, inheriting the, a portion at least of the Rockefeller fortune, billions and billions of dollars. And David Rockefeller himself becomes the chairman and CEO of Chase Manhattan Bank. Um, that's basically his like professional role. Um, not that he really needed to work, but can we pause for a second and just talk real quickly? What do you mean by crisis of democracy? Like, are you well, going to get, get to we're going to get to that? Okay. Mm -hmm. So like what? Okay. Yeah. So David Rockefeller is the CEO. He's the inherited inheriting the Rockefeller fortune and he's the CEO and chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank. He's also the director um, starting in 1949 of the Council on Foreign Relations. The Council on Foreign Relations is a think tank that focuses on um, international economics and foreign relations. Uh, this will be important in a few minutes. There will be some links there that uh, are a result of this council. So he's the director of that. That starts in 1949 when he takes it over. Uh, the actual council starts long before that, but he takes over the directorship in 1949. So as a result of this quote-unquote crisis, uh, the global unrest of the 60s, I mean, it's really the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but um, he forms, him and others form what is called the Trilateral Commission. 
This is founded in 1973, really at the request and funded by David Rockefeller. It's called Trilateral because there are three basic sort of sections of this commission, North America, Europe, and Japan. And by North America here, we really mean the United States and Canada uh, for the most part. So that's 1973. And prominent uh, business owners, uh, I mean, globally, business owners and politicians and so forth uh, become members over time of this commission. We'll talk about some specific ones in a second. They set out, one of the first things they do is to try to figure out what to do with this quote-unquote crisis. So they commission a report from three scholars across the globe in each of the three regions to basically do a study into what has caused the unrest of the 1960s and what they as the commission can do about it to protect their interests as wealthy elite. The full title, actually let's talk about the three scholars. So there's Michel Crozier, Crozier, probably. He's in Paris. It's French. I can never pronounce French names. So, but, uh, so he's representing the sort of Western European section of the Trilateral Commission. Then we have Joji Watanuki. He's out of Tokyo. So he's representing uh, and writing about specifically in Japan what's going on. And then Samuel P. Huntington is writing about the United States. If you've never heard of Huntington, he's actually a pretty famous historian. Uh, he worked out of Harvard. So he's writing the section on uh, the U.S., the full title of the report is The Crisis of Democracy, Report on the Governability of Democracies to the Trilateral Commission. Now, uh, when we're talking about this in class, our students often think that this is like conspiracy theory stuff. But you literally, the, uh, the Trilateral Commission has a website. It's still in existence. And you can find they have this crisis of democracy. They're, they're proud of it. Yeah, they're, they're, on their website. And they're it's published. Proud of this report mm-hmm. that basically argues that there's too much democracy in the well, advanced you're spoiling, industrial world. Spoiler alert. We haven't got to the crisis yet. Damn it. So they issued this report in 1975. I'm going to read some excerpts from this report so you can get an idea of we're just going to focus on the United States section. It's basically broken down into three chapters, Western Europe, Japan, and United States. We're just going to focus on the United States. So in the midst of the 1960s, um, afterwards in 1975, this report gets published by these scholars uh, who are paid, let's just say it, by the Trilateral Commission. So the report seeks to answer the question, and this is from the introduction, is democracy in crisis? Basically, they're asking, is democracy in crisis as a result of the unrest that's occurring globally? And if so, what can we do about it? So I'm going to read some quotes. This is from the U.S. section. The 1960s witnessed a dramatic renewal of the democratic spirit in America. The 1960s also saw, of course, a market upswing in the forms of citizen participation in the form of marches, demonstrations, protest movements, and cause organizations. The expansion of participation throughout society was reflected in the markedly higher levels of self-consciousness on the part of blacks, Indians, Chicanos, white ethnic groups, students, and women, all of whom became mobilized and organized in new ways to achieve what they considered to be their appropriate share of the action and of the rewards. Previously passive or unorganized groups in the population now embarked on concerted efforts to establish their claims to opportunities, positions, rewards, and privileges, which they had not considered themselves entitled to before. What do you have to say about that? Well, I mean, that entitlement was attached to, uh, uh, in certain cases, centuries of oppression and subordination of, like, the worst degree. So... The fact that like the 1960s saw certain forms of like social progress in one way, or maybe even legislative progress, if we want to like refer to like the 64 Civil Rights Act, 
And that leads to like people thinking, well, okay, now um, basically like the United States Constitution now does apply to me and I deserve to have equal opportunity, especially in the political and economic sphere, and to be able to compete with these white male elites mm-hmm. um, on 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 a similar plane. Like that scared the de- that scared them to death. Like it absolutely scared yep. them to death. And this is kind of like their overreaction to that. That like how dare women or African Americans or Chicanos or or First Nations think that they deserve these rights and part of the rights that they thought they deserved was because they were like quote unquote overeducated Mm -hmm. back to back world wars and the GI bill like like education will become kind of a target but Nick's going to get to that here in a second yeah they come up with a few different reasons for this happening and one of them is education they I mean just Overall, these groups become more educated after World War II, like Jared said, as a result of the GI Bill and other factors that are happening. They also talk about, in their Trilateral Commission report, an increase in group consciousness. So there's this new levels of sort of group solidarity and so forth among these populations. So they conclude the report with kind of like what to do about this. So here we go. Quote, Al Smith once remarked that the only cure for the evils of democracy is more democracy. Our analysis suggests that applying that cure at the present time could well be adding fuel to the flames. Instead, some of the problems of the governance in the United States today stem from an excess of democracy. An excess of democracy. So they say, many times people suggest that if there's problems with the democratic system, it must not be democratic enough. Not enough people have a say in what's going on and so forth. Things prevent people from participating and so on. They say that actually if we did that right now, if we opened up democracy to more people, it would be, what do they say, adding fuel to the flames. They say instead we need less democracy. I'm continuing here, quote, The effective operation of a democratic political system usually requires some measure of apathy and non-involvement on the part of some individuals and groups. In the past, every democratic society has had marginal population of greater or lesser size, which has not actively participated in politics. In itself, this marginality on the part of some groups is inherently undemocratic, but it has also been one of the factors which has enabled democracy to function effectively. Marginal social groups, as in the case of the blacks, are now becoming full participants in the political system. Yet the danger of overloading the political system with demands which extend its functions and undermine its authority still remains. Less marginality on the part of some groups thus needs to be replaced by more self-restraint on the part of all groups. So they basically say in order for a democratic system to function, some part of the population has to uh, be apathetic and uninvolved. They say apathy and non-involvement. And that these groups that now are participating have thrown the system sort of out of balance because now there is too much participation. There is too much democracy. Keep in mind, like too much democracy is not even unique to this group that's formed here um, in the late 60s, early 70s um, at the behest of like, you know, the elites. Like this is a U.S. hallmark, right? The the, the Federalist Papers reveal like the, the, the nation was founded on hoping like, right, like there would be a little bit less democracy. Democracy would be tempered by things like the Electoral College and, and all of these other processes that are laid out by the James Madisons and the Alexander yep. Hamiltons and the John Jays. I mean, and, and, and if we really want to take this all the way back, we can go back to ancient Greece and like the critiques of democracy by the by by Aristotle. Um, and I mean, it's just, well, and like, it's funny that you bring that up because they aren't even hiding from that in the report. They specifically no. reference the Federalist Papers and James Madison and Greeks and their critique of democracy and so forth. I mean, it, it, 
I guess there's just a rich history of how democracy or what we have called democracy historically, whether we want to pick on ancient Athens or we want to pick on the modern United States, has actually shown countless countless examples of how undemocratic it seeks to tr- it seeks to be mm-hmm. and how those people at the top of the proverbial pyramid seek to shape it in ways that are are highly manipulative and that's me that's the kindest word i can think of right, right. now right like that's so when we're teaching this in class i often pause here and ask our students if you were these people, if you were Rockefeller and the members of the Trilateral Commission and so forth, and you believe this, you believe that democracy was in crisis because too many people were participating, and then by extension, this was jeopardizing your position at the top of the social hierarchy and your assets and so on, what would you do with your unlimited resources, billions and billions of dollars, political connections across the globe, right? There's members of this commission from all over the world, and many of them, they're incredibly wealthy business uh, people, and they are political influencers. What would you do? And so various answers comes from the students. And eventually the answer is, you would try to probably control the highest political positions uh, in the world, specifically in the United States. You would try to take control of the federal government. Spoiler alert, that's exactly what the Trilateral Commission tries to do. One of the first actions they do is admit Jimmy Carter to the Trilateral Commission. Uh, He's governor at this point of Georgia. We know where this is going, right? Um, Then they campaign furiously to get Carter elected. He's elected president in 1977. Then they influence Carter to name members of his cabinet that are friendly to the commission. Remember, I said Rockefeller is the, he's one of the original founding members of the Trilateral Commission. He's CEO of Chase Manhattan Bank, and he is the director of the Council on Foreign Relations. So these are the members of Carter's cabinet that are connected to Rockefeller in various ways. So we have Vice President Walter Mondale. He's a member of the Trilateral Commission. Secretary of State, Carter had two Secretary of States. The first one is Cyrus Vance. He's a member of the Trilateral Commission. Secretary of Defense is Harold Brown. He's a member of the Trilateral Commission. National Security Advisor, and I'm going to butcher this name, um, Zinu Berzeznik, he is Director of the Trilateral Commission, National Security Advisor under Carter. Carter's first Secretary of Health and Health Education and Welfare is a man by the name of Joseph Califano Jr. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. At this point in time, in the beginning of Carter's presidency, there is no independent Department of Education. It's part of this uh, Secretary Health Education and Welfare was the department. We'll get to that in a second, how that changes. Carter's second Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, Patricia Robert Harris, she was not officially associated with the Trilateral Commission or the Council on Foreign Relations, but she sat on the board of directors of Chase Manhattan Bank with David Rockefeller. Rockefeller is the CEO and the uh, chair of the board of directors. We'll come back to the Secretary of Education when we get that in a second. The chairman of the Federal Reserve was a man by the name of Paul Volcker under Carter. He is a member of the Trilateral Commission. Right the Council on Foreign Relations, and a board member at Chase Manhattan Bank. Just a real, real piece of work, this guy, this one. The chair of economic advisors is someone you might have heard of, a man by the name of Alan Greenspan under Carter. He was one of the founding members of the Trilateral Commission. And as you're probably more familiar with, he would continue to be, he would go on to become the chair of the Federal Reserve under Reagan, Bush Sr., Clinton, and Bush Jr. So Alan Greenspan was a founding member of the Trilateral Commission. So, 
successfully they've taken over the federal government, at least the president and his cabinet. Other members uh, served in Congress and so on. Also, one of Carter's, I don't want to say it's the only thing he ever did in his presidency, but I mean, let's be honest, he didn't do a lot when he was in office. He's done much more since he left office and should actually be commended for some of the things he's done after he left office. But in office, one of the most important things he did was set up the Department of Education as its own department, separate from uh, what used to be health, education and welfare. And he does this officially, signs it into law in 1979. This gives the Carter administration more power to build relations, let's just say it, to control education in the United States. So let's pause. Once you, going back to that question that Nick mentioned we asked in class, right? Once you have at least influenced these political positions, and again, this isn't some sort of like weird, like Illuminati kind of thing, like the Trilateral Commission still has a website. They're proud of what they do. They, they still exist. Like they're still doing things. You can Google them right now mm-hmm. while you're listening to us. The Council of Foreign Relations actually right. still exists. They have a website. Yeah, and, yeah. it's all there. Um, but but once you have this type of influence with these political figures, who at the time probably themselves don't even realize what they're doing. I'm not saying like Jimmy Carter is some sort of weird, insidious mastermind. That, right. like that, that's not what's going on. But once you have this influence with the political figures, what can you do? What will trickle, quote unquote, trickle down? The only thing that trickles down, it's not economics. It's, 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 it's control over the production of knowledge. You control the production of knowledge. You control the way people are educated and you temper mm-hmm. that education. You don't want that education to be as good as it should be. Right. If you've concluded through this study that part of the crisis of democracy that you're seeing, part of the reason that people are no longer apathetic and uninvolved in the democratic system is because they are now becoming educated, coming back from World War II, the GI Bill, and so forth, then one of the things that you would do is try to control how the masses in the country of the United States are educated. So like I said, Carter forms, he, he doesn't form it, but he breaks off the Department of Education to make it its own independent entity in 1979. His first official secretary of education, where that's all that she does, is Shirley Hefstetler. She is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. I also want to stress that this is not a partisan effort, that Carter is Democratic um, many of the members of the Trilateral Commission are Republican and so forth. So this is a beyond sort of just the political level. Yeah, this isn't Democratic this or is, Republican. Yeah, this, this isn't is, the Democrats controlling This is elitist, of, exactly. of which both parties are elitist. 100%. This Do is not actually, lie to yourself. Both parties are. Actually, an excellent example yeah. of political influence taking place outside of the democratic and purely political system, using incredible wealth to control the political process and influence within the political system. Um, So Carter forms the Department of Education in 1979. His first secretary of education, Shirley Hufstetler, is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Let's talk about what happens after Carter. So we have Reagan, president after Carter. He was not a member of the Trilateral Commission. In fact, for all of Reagan's fault, of which there are thousands, he actually was against the Trilateral Commission. Can we not say anything nice about this man? Can we just not? Please stop. One of the pillars of his campaign was he was going to eliminate the Department of Education. He promised that to his constituents. Uh, He was unable to do so once he got into office, but you can see how Reagan was against the Trilateral Commission. Mind you, only because he wanted to privatize all schooling so only the wealthy would be educated. Right, could afford it, yeah. (laughs) Bush Sr., member of the Trilateral Commission. Clinton, member of the Trilateral Commission. Bush Jr., member of the Trilateral Commission. Obama, member of the Trilateral Commission. Trump, not a member of the Trilateral Commission, which I'm always surprised by, but I actually think that was less to do with his political 
influence and more to do with the fact that he wasn't actually a real business person. They didn't view him. <laughs> they didn't view him as like actually elite, right? So every president since Carter, except for Reagan and Bush, were members of the Trilateral Commission. We're not going to go into the specifics of every cabinet member or congressman or whoever since then has been a member of the Trilateral Commission. Um, but you get the idea. The influence of this organization at the time that has now still to this day has incredible influence on uh, the political happenings in the United States. Now, some people take this to the what I would consider to be the conspiracy level uh, theory level. Like there are articles you can Google that will find that people suggest that the Trilateral Commission single-handedly uh, caused 9-11 and so forth. I'm not going to go that far. Um, we don't even have to, though, go to the level of conspiracy to demonstrate what we just talked about. And like we've been talking about throughout, this isn't some, like like Jared said, Illuminati thing that like, oh my God, this isn't secret and this can't possibly be true. In fact, I, when I'm talking about this, I always talk about one semester when we were teaching this in class. The next session after I talked about this, I had a student come up before class and was like, Last time I left this class, so irate because I thought that you were feeding us conspiracy theories in class that I was just like enraged. And I went home to Google to try to completely like debunk everything you told us. And I realized that it's all true. And holy shit, I was even more enraged. Like this, it's easily, like I said, this crisis of democracy is on the Trilateral Commission yeah, website. It. It'll be the first so thing you forth. find, the PDF. Yep. Yeah. And we'll link to it. Yeah. I think you can even buy the report online. Like they publish it as an actual book. I think it was published in New York by New York University Press or something like that. You can still find it on Amazon. Um, it's very, very interesting. Uh, so like I said, not a conspiracy theory. You don't even have to go to the level of conspiracy, though some people do, to talk about the Trilateral Commission. It's just a very, very good example of how the elite in the United States can manipulate the political system with their unlimited resources. So the most important part for me, and when I use it in, in class, is actually to talk about why I choose to um, focus on like the historical narratives that I do that challenge like the dominant ethically constitutive stories of the United States and obviously offend people all the time and things along those lines. And then I ask the students when we're learning about the truth about a Columbus or a Pocahontas or an Alexander Hamilton or a World War II or whatever topic we're on that day, why you've never heard this other side of the story. And then we start to have this discussion. Well, that's my, my third grade teacher never told me this or it wasn't in the Thanksgiving play or whatever like and then we start to understand that we start to have a conversation well why are you only taught these certain angles throughout like and this is your whole life basically from k through 12 and unfortunately increasingly now past that in higher ed but that's a different topic these narratives at least for history and i'm willing to bet for all of the other disciplines that i'm much less familiar with are controlled because of the department of education how is that controlled it's because of the Trilateral Commission, and they're seeking to basically dumb down that education. So if you ask yourself, why are there so many standardized tests, especially in the human sciences, how can everything be so like black or white or right or wrong? Like that's just not the way the world exists in gray. And yet our standardization of the education system makes it black or white. Well, mm -hmm. how does that feed? How does that influence thinkers as they become adults into a political system? Well, the political system paints everything as black and white. And they have now been socialized for 12 years in an education system that everything is either true or false or A, B, C, or D, or right or wrong. It's, it, this, it's a long-standing socialization process. And, of course, we know those standardized tests are tied to what? Most important part of this, 
Yep, exactly. That's how this, the, so the schools are willing to like kind of acquiesce to the Department of Education. And Not only that, but like the emphasis and funding yeah. of STEM over humanities and so forth. I mean, it's just right. endless. Right? I mean, STEM's good. We're not going to crap on STEM. But yes, like one of those things like STEM is easier, is way easier to control the narrative on, quote unquote, because it's much easier to say two plus two equals four than to try and dig into like the nuances of like, I don't know, like the historical story. What did I already give an example? Like the Pocahontas story mm-hmm. like that. That can go a whole bunch of different directions, but two plus two always equals four. Or at least I, I'm sure some sort of theoretical mathematician will, will, will challenge me in the comments. But but it's much easier to kind of control that narrative. And again, you're not just conditioning people for the answer of four or that uh, whatever, like this Pocahontas story was X, Y, or Z. You're conditioning the way they think. That's the important part. Yep. Our Department of Education is not about, at this point in time, at least under the guidance of, of members of the Trilateral Commission, about teaching people how to think. It's no longer about that. It's about teaching them what to think. Mm-hmm. And to social them into becoming simple-minded consumers and laborers that are apathetic to the political process. Perfect. If you want more information on this, we will post some links for you to explore. But I also want to give a shout out to a film that I don't think gets nearly enough credit that Jared and actually, I actually show clips of in our courses when we're teaching this It stuff. inspired this episode. Yeah, it's yeah. called The Lottery at Birth. I mean, it's a documentary film that touches on this topic and many, many other topics uh so seek that out i think it's on amazon currently if i looked recently today but it changes frequently but we'll post a link to that as well i highly highly suggest just watching the whole film is uh pretty amazing uh, they only talk about this specific thing for like three minutes or something the whole rest is about w- how uh our way of thinking how we're socializing the thinking a certain way in the united states and um etc um do you have any closing thoughts I have so many thoughts, but this episode needs to end, but we probably do need to do a whole episode on like how education works here and why we're so disappointed. For Um, sure. So look forward to that in a future episode. If you like what we do, support us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Subscribe to us here. Um, uh, either if you're listening to this in a podcasting app or watching this on YouTube, subscribe to our channel. If you like uh, what we're doing, share us with your friends. You can find us online at revolutionideology.com. We are on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Um, so look forward to future episodes along these lines as well. I'm Nick. Jared. Later.